everyone. I'm so glad you're here and welcome to Satiate, the Boulder Nutrition Podcast. I'm Sue Van Rees, your host, functional nutritionist, food psychology specialist, and founder of Boulder Nutrition. I also lead women's wellness and yoga retreats, both locally and internationally. My inspiration in creating Satiate, the Boulder Nutrition Podcast, is to offer you well-being and functional nutrition insights, to share with you many inspiring stories that can be salve for your soul, to introduce to you some of my very special guests and specialists in their field from all across the country and to offer you an opportunity to satiate your body, mind, and soul. I want to take a quick moment to introduce to you today's special guest on Satiate. Livia Shapiro is a mama, longtime yoga practitioner and teacher, somatic psychotherapist, and author. Livia writes on the intersection of yoga, somatics, and psychology, offering a fresh and sane voice to the emergent trends within the fields of yoga and wellness. She is the author of her brand new book, The Somatic Therapy Workbook, Stress-Relieving Exercises for Strengthening the Mind-Body Connection and Sparking Emotional and Physical Healing. In the yoga world, she brings essential somatic psychology principles and tools to dedicated yoga students and instructors worldwide through Applied Psychology for Yogis and her weekly somatic and attachment-oriented yoga classes. As a somatic psychotherapist, Livia works holistically helping women reorient and repair their nervous systems to live more vibrantly and powerfully. She assists in one's processes of trauma healing, navigating the threshold journey of motherhood, and supporting the emergence of authentic desire and healthy impulses. She is a fierce and vocal advocate for maternal wellness and healthcare, as well as health and sanity of all women. Livia is skilled in working with grief, loss, anxiety, PTSD, attachment trauma, and intimate betrayal, major life transition, eating disorders, and the spiritual emergence in mind-body practitioners. Livia holds a master's of somatic counseling psychology from Naropa University and is certified Soma Source Life Cycles Practitioner. I'm so excited to have her on the podcast today. Livia and I have known each other for many, many years, and I'm so excited about the launch of her new book. So let's begin. Livia, so good to have you on the podcast today. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. <laughs> I feel like we've crossed paths for so many years and it's Indeed. really good to be able to like have a heart to heart today. Indeed. Yes. So I'm really excited about your new book and I definitely want to really emphasize like some of the work that you're doing within that structure as we talk today, but Let's kind of start at the beginning because I know that you have 
come to this work and come to your finished product of this amazing book recently with a lot of, you know, a huge journey. So tell us a little bit about your work with somatic psychology and therapy. Mm. Yeah. Um, well, I am a longtime yoga practitioner and teacher, um, at this point, half my life, um, more than that. And, um, so there's that, let's just hang that little piece on a hook. And then, um, I grew up as a competitive figure skater. So, um, pretty, uh, pretty athletic. Um, so we've got that hanging on a hook. Um, (laughs) my, I grew up in a very, um, kind of creative family. Um, my parents are very um, artistic and creative uh, individuals. And um, so we'll hang that. I also grew up in a lot of transgenerational trauma um, and was witness to a lot of, um, I guess we might say like symptomatic individual and familial structures as, a re- as related to that. And then in my own system, um, And so we'll hang that up in the closet there. And then, you know, the thing that really pivoted me to go to Naropa and to seek a degree in somatic counseling psychology was this kind of like pivotal moment in my, uh, I would say like, uh, I don't know, early mid twenties. I don't know. I was like 23 or something. Um, And I wanted to go back to school. I wanted to move from where I was living. I didn't really know exactly what that should be. I was looking at a couple other iterations. I mean, I also have a big background in um, studying art history and was like, oh, well, I don't, I could, I don't want to take the GRE and like do something super ivory tower. So um, long story short, I ended up at Naropa and a big piece of that was like, at the time I was um, working in an outpatient eating disorders clinic with a, with a yoga based program. Like I, and at that time I was an Anusara yoga teacher and I was like, Anusara yoga is going to save these individuals from their eating disorder, just like it saved me. And I was uh, grandiose obviously. And, um, and so I presented this program at this outpatient clinic and it was all going okay. But one of the things I observed was that the, the symptoms, like at a symptomatic level, some of the symptoms of the individuals taking the classes actually were getting more severe. And I was like, well, I am not equipped for that. Um, (laughs) I'm just definitely not equipped for that. And so, you know, somatic counseling psychology at Naropa in Boulder, Colorado, yoga is a kind of somatic psychology. I'm going to go do that. Um, And so I entered that program really with a major intention of being capable to teach the kind of yoga I wanted to teach, like to actually be better at the thing that I already had as a career. Um, I felt very ill-equipped to deal with, I could teach yoga, but I couldn't speak to or hold or support the emergent process that comes with doing yoga. Mm. And I was like, that's not going to work. How could you be an educator if you can't deal with the fallout of what you're educating? So, um, 
that's how I ended up there and really in that track. And of course, now my work looks like, you know, I have a private practice. I still teach yoga. I teach somatic psychology to yoga teachers. And as I've matured, I think the common thread is really like, how do we embody? How do we live in a body? How do we be ourselves with all of the the sensations and feelings and complications and beauty mm-hmm. that that is? Um, and so whatever it is I'm teaching to or supporting, that's really the, the thread. Um, and if I go back and look at my biographical kind of inf- information, it's that thread is there too. Yeah. So that's the kind of, yeah. Yeah. Stroke it's, picture. <laughs> it's an interesting, like to the outsider, it might sound like a really interesting combination, but uh-huh as a practitioner of yoga myself, and I know we've been in the same yoga community for many years, or at least many overlaps, um, you know, there is something that really does work in the yoga tradition, for example, and in many embodiment practices. And I absolutely understand what you're saying, because in leading a lot of women's retreats, and watching what comes up for people when they're immersed in their practice and they're going through sort of an accelerated healing, there's surely the need for certain types of support on the other side. And I think that, um, you know, with my special specialty being in food and yours being more in psychology, I'm sure we both have our ways of, you know, kind of stepping in and using that tool now, whereas I understand what you're saying, like, getting that degree, I'm sure gave you like the full circle of what you felt like you needed for, for your work. It did. It definitely opened the doors that I wanted it to open. And, um, I always sort of had this agitation. I mean, it's different now. Like when I went to school, when I started school and when I was first having the, you know, this itch, this unrest of all of that, I think that the combination of yoga and psychology was not as common as it is now. I mean, now mm-hmm. it's that that uh, intersection has really ex- grown. It's exploded, actually, which is great. At the time, you know, it was sort of like mind boggling to me, like, okay, on the one hand, you could do yoga and that might help with stress, that might help with depression, like that it does help. But there's also a way in which it's very aggravating. Like it actually stirs a lot of stuff up. It's so kind of like evocative and truth-telling. And how do you deal with that? Um, Mm -hmm. And I was always uncomfortable with this idea that like you open people up, but but if you're not also simultaneously teaching them skills to deal with those openings, then we're sort of just like raw out in the world. And that's not necessarily that useful. It can be really difficult to function in that way. Well, it's like that excessive vulnerability when it happens too much, too fast. I mean, most of us have had that experience. It's like, it's a little more subtle than that in a way because it's happening like almost unconsciously. But when we get into that excessive vulnerability, we, most of us know what it feels like to have the vulnerability hangover, which can be right back, pushing us into another level of shutting down. So that doesn't do much good. So Mm -hmm. I totally hear you. Yeah. Um, 
So I just want to say that I just want to introduce your book so people know, and then we'll maybe talk a little bit about it. Because one of the things that I thought would be so interesting today is to just kind of go through what you consider definition of terms in the somatic psychology world. So, um, and you just did such a great job of really defining that at the beginning of your book. And I just felt like it was really clarifying for me because some of these terms are thrown around a lot. And I don't know if we ever really like define them so clearly. So the Somatic Therapy Workbook, Stress Relieving Exercises for Strengthening the Mind-Body Connection and Sparking Emotional and Physical Healing. Tell us a little bit about, in the very first part of the book, you're talking about all these different terms in the somatic psychology realm. And can you give us like a little mini walkthrough just so for the rest of our conversation, people know what we're talking about really? Yeah. Yeah, when I was given the task of of writing this book, it felt important to me to include to get to get all the readers basically to get us all on the same page, you know. And that's one of the questions that comes up a lot in my um, in my courses with yoga teachers. There, we spend a lot of time actually like delineating the field, and I think there's actually a lot of muddiness in the field of like using terms like embodiment. Um, somatic, um, even like the term dis- like dissociation actually has a very specific meaning, but we're sort of like throwing it around almost like an insult or something. Um, and when the terms get so ubiquitous, they start to get watered down. And also one of the questions that I get a lot is, okay, well, what are the different, like, like if somatic psychology is this umbrella, what exists under the umbrella? It confuses people just like you know, yoga, Hatha yoga is a huge umbrella and they're not, each practice is different, right? Like methods are different. And so just like in yoga where we have different methodology, same thing is true in somatic psychology. We have different methods that approach the same topic just from a different angle or different kind of doorway really. So, um, When we talk about embodiment, I mean, the, the definition, I'll give you like the first sentence here for, for our listeners. Embodiment describes the experience and process of fully inhabiting your skin in such a way that your thoughts, actions, feelings, and intentions find a cohesive expression through your body. So when we talk about embodiment, it's really like, it's this, it's the felt sense of being contained in your body. Like um, I took a walk this morning around Wonderland Lake and the sun is shining. Such a beautiful day here in Boulder today. Mm, and right. I'm feeling the sun on my face, my face, my skin. I'm walking in my body with my legs, feeling my breath. That's a quality of embodiment that, that felt sense of being in here, right in here being this body. Um, and with the capacity to have pleasure there too, like, oh, the warm sun, you know, as opposed to, have you ever been to, have, have you ever been driving your car and then all of a sudden you realized you were at the location you're like, whoa, what just happened? So that's the antithesis of embodiment, right? Like you're not aware of being aware, right? You're not aware of your presence. So at one level embodiment is that, it's also the way that we are congruent in our thoughts, actions, feelings, behaviors, 
right? There's not a, a split. It's that we actually are able to align what we're thinking, what we're feeling, how we're acting um, based on what we are experiencing. And I think that we actually live in a culture that doesn't really want that from us. We actually aren't, our culture doesn't actually want us to be aligned in our body, mind, uh, sensations, actions. We, we actually, everything in, everything in culture says to a woman, feel this, but do that. Absolutely. It's radical. If you're, if to stand in the world as an embodied woman and say, no, I'm going to act completely congruent. So if I'm angry, I'm not going to smile. It's radical. It mm-hmm. makes people very uncomfortable. Mm. Oh my gosh. <laughs> it's like, yeah. I mean, I'm sure you do that a lot in your work of like getting congruent, right? Like um, ignoring the fact that you're hungry and you need to eat. Exactly. Yeah. So that's the, my basic gist in embodiment. And you can see it. Um, it, it's that feeling when you're practicing yoga and like you, you're in there, like you feel it. And as a witness, you can tell when someone's in there, like you really can see that there's a fullness there, that there's a presence there. They're not tripping on something else. Um, so that's what we mean by embodiment. The antithesis of embodiment being dissociation, which means that we disembody, we mentally go someplace else. We actually at an awareness level and an intellectual level, we actually vacate the felt sense of being in our body so that we can avoid pain. So I know it's sort of become a ubiquitous term, like an insult, like, oh, that person's dissociating, but it's actually like, that's our best strategy for dealing with stress. So well, like, yeah, it's like the coping it. skill, right? Coping skill. Yeah. When, when being in our body feels like it's too much for whatever right. reason, fear, exactly. anxiety, uncomfortable feelings, the opposite of pleasure, really. Exactly. Or maybe even too much pleasure where it's exactly. overwhelming. You know, it's so much easier to just like vacate than it is to actually sit there. Yes. It's, um, it's a really good, it's a really, I, I like the bringing the two together just yeah. to kind of do the comparison. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Thank you. And then in, you know, if we follow the trajectory of that chapter you're speaking to, so then I try to break down soma, somatics, somatic psychology, somatic therapy. Soma is, um, well, in Greek, it means of the body. Um, And so when we talk about somatic psychology, we're talking about a psychology of the body. We're actually not talking about the mind and like the thought patterns of the mind. We're actually talking about the patterns of the body mind. So like, what is the thing, the patterns that are linking those thoughts with felt sense? Um, Mm -hmm. And a lot of traditions speak to the quality of the, the notion of the soma. And so it depends on where you look in terms of its definition. But um, I like this idea that like the soma is really, it's sort of like the connective tissue of your body mind matrix. Like it is the, th- it is the thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The glue, like, like the glue, the glue, like it's, it's the, like, you could have muscle, you could have bone, but they wouldn't work together unless you had some kind of connection. That's soma. Soma is like, you live in a body with functionality and felt experience and your mind is helping you to decipher that felt sense. 
So they have to work together to give and receive any kind of impact in the world. So if you weren't present with your soma, you sort of, there's no, uh, there's sort of no traction of giving and receiving impact. So mm -hmm. soma, like we're both, we are made of soma. We can work with our soma. We, um, yeah, we can assess it. We can um, tonify it, if you will. That's, that's soma. Um, and I would also like to kind of link it to something more metaphysical there's some indication in different traditions that that, that that same quality of connective tissue is the same kind of quality that lives in the stardust. Like it actually has this very luminous quality to it. When we talk about the soma, we're not talking about like vibrant sunlight. We're talking about like a very luminous, soft quality of awareness. John O'Donohue writes about this in the, um, in the Anamkara and he talks about that the way that we approach what is sacred inside ourselves, what is numinous, what is subtle is with a very luminous moonlight as opposed to like this stark, like kind of piercing light. So if you could, you know, if you take like psychology, there's a way in which psychology can be very like, let me understand your mind. And if you think this, then you should do it in like this very sort of kind of linear Mm -hmm. somatics undertakes this idea that like it's not linear at all we're like deep in the matrix i love that <laughs> super subtle so that's soma and somatics to put it very simply is like the study of that somatics mm -hmm. is the study and practice of engaging your felt sense body mind right so somatics usually includes movement-based practices that have a lot of awareness structure like um, authentic movement, five rhythms, Feldenkrais, right? That's so, that's in the field of somatics. They're very movement-based and they're very self-reflective and awareness-based. Um, do I think that yoga is a form of somatics? Yeah, right. It's the study of that. Mm -hmm. It's the study of the felt sense while moving, breathing, being in a body. Mm -hmm. Somatic psychology is that overarching term. One of my teachers, um, Christine Caldwell, who founded the program at Naropa, she says that the study of the body-mind connection, it draws upon philosophy, medicine, and other sciences in an attempt to unify human beings into an, an organic whole for the purpose of healing and transformation. Mm. So, you know, somatic psychology, we draw on neuroscience, we draw on behavioral theory, we draw on movement impulse, we draw on, on, on like motor coordination um, and the, our, our human development to really understand the growing edge of ourselves as individuals and where there might be kind of skips in the record. And then when we talk about somatic therapy versus somatic psychotherapy, um, Somatic therapy is more like the inroad is more movement-based. It's more felt sense-based. And yes, there might be a psychological issue, but the way that we enter it is like the application of the somatic techniques of movement techniques, of energetic techniques, of felt sense techniques. And the byproduct is you psychologically feel better. Whereas somatic psycho uh, psychotherapy is the person says, I have anxiety, I am depressed, um, I uh, 
have PTSD, right? Like a, some sort of developmental, psychological, or relational issue is identified. And we say, okay, your growing edge is there, but let's find that in your body. Mm -hmm. So it's sort of like, there's obviously crossover. And like in that second chapter of the book, I give you a diagram just to help break it down. But, um, you know, of course there's overlap, but there's kind of this um, inroad. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah. It's really helpful to clarify those, especially if some of us are new to them. Mm. One of the things that I think you and I agree on, and also maybe you can speak to this just a little bit more. <clears throat> and I, and I think that we talk about the mind body connection a lot. We hear about it. We, you know, there's just an over infiltration of mind, body, mind, body in our media, especially if we're sort of steering towards somewhat spiritual yogic type, you know, reading. And I think what I find to be just fascinating is that often it is um, talked about as if it's very abstract. Mm -hmm. And what I'd love to hear from you is your interpretation of how concrete that is um, and how we can actually really use that in our own healing because mm -hmm. it's so much more than, you know, a, a, a trendy term that we hear in the, in the world right now. Yeah. Wow. There's a lot. I mean, there's a lot of examples I could give, mm -hmm. um, even just from my own life. Um, I, and also clinically, I once worked with someone who, um, was a longtime meditator and they came to me because they were having, um, a spontaneous Kriya occur. And a Kriya is like a move, like a movement impulse for those who don't know what a Kriya is in their meditation. And this would interrupt their meditation to the point where it was so disruptive to them, they couldn't then meditate. And so in our work together, we, we worked on dropping into meditation until the, the spontaneous movement impulse would occur. And then we did a variety of techniques, but one of them was, okay, pause there, hold that shape. Now find like, which way does your hand want to move? How does your head want to move? Right? Like we slowed it way down, almost like frag pixel by pixel. And lo and behold, the Kriya is about something biographical. So my point being that it wasn't like some neurological issue that was arising in meditation. It was smack up against an unresolved relational dynamic that was now coming up in meditation through body. Right. Mm. And that was the work. Mm. So that's one example. Another very simple example is like, you're doing yoga and you start to cry. <laughs> you know, you have a, you have an emotive experience. You start to cry or you feel angry or you feel happy, like emotional, expression while, while moving your body is another example. Um, another example is like you practice yoga and then you feel more calm. <laughs> you know, that's sort of, I, I laugh because it's like, it's so basic, but like we forget that like, yeah, literally some of the, the, the poses um, imprint upon our nervous system and we feel it makes a difference. The difference between a backbend practice and 
an inversion practice radically different Mm -hmm. and you feel that imprint. Um, Another kind of more personal example is, and like, here's where kind of, I don't know, rubber meets the road with writing the book. I wrote the book in a really, really, really difficult time in my life. Like probably the most, like the worst, like the most hard and not just COVID, but like everything. And I'm obviously well-trained both as a practitioner and a witness to this, these processes. And I, um, for years, um, had a recurring dream. I won't go into the details of the dream, but I had a recurring dream where I'd wake up in a cold sweat. I mean, we are talking (laughs) like panic attack. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until I had the dream maybe for four years. And then I eventually got feedback in my life that what I was seeing in the dream was actually what was happening. And I didn't know it. And I had so many psychosomatic symptoms that went along with this. I had a weird um, shoulder, like a, just like a weird shoulder injury, like down to the point where like, I was like convinced my rotator cuff was completely screwed up. And when I finally, I then finally spoke this piece of truth some months ago, guess what? The shoulder pain spontaneously went away. Wow. So, I mean, and I'm giving it to you in the most sort of uh, surface piece here without going into like actual specific details, but suffice to say, I mean, obviously not every injury is psychosomatic, not every ache and pain is in your mind, but like, just to say that, um, the felt sense are like little, like my mentor would say little Dharma bells, wake up, wake up, wake up, wake up, wake up, just like pay attention. Right. Like I had also had this like weird rib thing um, and unexplained. Been to medical pressure. It's, it's, it's an unexplained thing. It's like some yo- weird yoga injury, like it's ribitis. <laughs> well, guess what? Like the ribitis is like completely emotionally based. And so when I actually stop, like, what's wrong with my rib? What's wrong? And I like get quiet and I say, like, actually, what are you trying to tell me? What is it that you have to say? What is it that's going on? okay, then the tears come. And then, Mm. you know, without fail, the tears come, I feel the truth. um, And then it's my responsibility to speak what the truth is. And usually what the truth is, is not that easy to say. Wow. When the truth is not easy to say, we stuff it, stuff it, stuff it, stuff. We either implode or we explode and our bodies tweak out if we're really sensitive. So that is the mind-body connection. Yeah. And I would also put like emotional connection, right? Like a lot of times we just stuff what's, what the emotional truth is. And then when we're, it's like a compressor overheating in your fridge, it breaks. Yeah. In a way it's pretty logical, but yet sometimes it seems non-logical when we're in oh yeah i mean i was like my rotator clearly it's a yoga injury like clearly i just it's a it's 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 a this you know i and like and this is someone like i i knew that it was couldn't be that mm-hmm. yeah. so yeah and we see that in the in the i think eating disorder recovery um world too right like what is the meaning of the addiction what is the meaning of the overeating or undereating like what what's actually underneath of that process? What is, what does it represent? I think we get a lot of traction in our healing process by looking at it that way. 
Absolutely. Yeah. So I just want to make sure we have time to talk a little bit about yeah. your book, which we are talking about, but you know, a little bit more in depth around your journey with your book and like your mission behind your book. So tell me a little bit about where this came from. Yeah. Um, well, I was actually in the middle of working on a book proposal for a slightly different project. I was working with um, a woman, uh, an amazing editor to get a book proposal out for um, Applied Psychology for Yogis, which has been my platform since 2012, teaching somatic psychology to yoga teachers. And it was sort of like, okay, Olivia, you have like seven courses. Why is this not just in a book? It was sort of like a shoe in. And, um, and I'm in the middle of this process. And then quite honestly, I get an email from an acquisitions editor at this publishing house. And they're like, we, we know that the field of psychology is moving to somatics more than ever. We know, frankly, we know that workbooks sell and we think that you, maybe you could write this book. So they actually presented the idea to me. Um, They wanted, they were very clear. We want a workbook on somatic psychology. And um, so I did not like come out and be like, I want to write a book workbook on somatic psychology. But they were like, do you want to write a book on somatic psychology? And I was like, yeah, I could write that book. You know, I (laughs) could write that book. Um, And then the cool thing was that, you know, they gave me like the basic, you know, the basic idea, the essential idea. And then I got to, I had so much freedom. So I really crafted the book that I wanted. Um, and my mission was to make somatic psychology as accessible as possible um, in a, in a both theoretical way and practical way, right? Like somatic psychology, like you are living in a, like all of your psychology is somatic. Like you don't actually have to go to a, to a professional to experience somatic psychology. Um, We are all experiencing that all the time, but what are some skills and tools that we can use on our own um, to do that? Now, do I think sometimes we need to go to a professional and be witnessed and supported? Yeah, totally. But a lot can get done in our, in our own process, um, especially if we have a, a, a practice. Um, mm-hmm. And I also have found that as the, the field has gotten bigger, it's gotten more confusing. Um, wow. It's like, in a way it's more accessible and like everyone's talking about it, except mm-hmm. that it's also a little more muddle, muddled up. And so I wanted to offer something that would be both very, essential and foundational while also being very clear. Um, I tried to write the book for as many people as possible, whether you were new or used to the model. Um, And I wanted it to be really clear and I wanted it to be really, just really focused on the essentials. Mm. Um, So I made that, I made that choice. I didn't try to be too complicated because I don't think yeah, it's I got that. complicated. Yeah, it's really, it's really simple in a certain way in the communication style and the clarity that you present. I really love being able to kind of go back to the basics and see things like really laid out really clearly. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things I love about your book 
is how you're really talking about how our bodies speak. Mm-hmm. And um, some of them are really, you know, um, what's the word tangible and really easy to grasp when I read your writing. And one of the ones that I thought would be interesting to talk about today is our body speaks. I think you say our body speaks in sensation. Is mm-hmm. that how you say it? Yeah. Our body, yeah, speaks our body in speaks sensation. In- yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, we talk about that a lot in the yogic tradition. I've definitely used a lot of that in my own teaching around the senses. It's like the way that I find I can drop into the present moment the quickest. And I think it's an easy one for people who are new to certain types of awareness arts and embodiment practices. So speak, can you speak to that a little bit? Because I think it's a really great place to begin for people. Cause we all have our senses happening 24 seven. We can really use them as a tool. Yeah. Well, that second section of the book, I, what I did is I tried to take all of like, uh, kind of considering all the different modalities that exist under this big umbrella somatic psychology. What are the absolute, what is the DNA? Mm. What is the foundational DNA? And so things like your body speaks through sensation, your body speaks through movement, your body has impulses you can trust you know, your body has boundaries, you know, really the DNA of living in a body that are shared across modalities. And I would say if we had to choose one, it's that one, your body speaks through sensation. Like you are a sensate being. Yeah. Um, that is the thing that makes you alive is having some senses. Be, I mean, even a single cell organism can tell if it's bumping up against a hard object or not. It yeah. expands, it contracts. So it's the most essential. It's like the core thing. Um, it's the chromosomal DNA, if you will. <laughs> and what I find actually is that, and so when we, when we talk about your body speaks through sensation, what we're talking about is the, the ability to pick up through the senses, like you're speaking to, right? Sight, sound, hearing, um, touch. Um, I would also add like the sixth sense or like the gut sense, right? The enteric sense. Um, and even like maybe something different than that, like that's like a spiritual sense, like an intuitive sense, like some kind of guidance. Um, mm-hmm. I would add in that too. So we mean that, but we also mean like, how does your knee feel? How does your toe feel? Like, is there a twitch on your tongue? How does, is your skin hot or cold, right? Um, is your belly grumbling? You know, what, what does it feel like in there? Um, and so when you have been impacted by trauma and your body is no longer safe, it's very common to ignore the sensations in your body, to ignore that tightness, to ignore the scratchiness in your throat. And in fact, to override them. Oh, well, you know, I, my belly is super tight as I approach this person and my gut is completely constricted and my muscles are tightening and my throat is getting scratchy, but I'll just ignore that. Cause that means nothing. And I'm just going to keep approaching them. And, you know, even though my body thinks they're dangerous, I'll just keep going, you know? So actually when we are in a traumatic situation, we are, and one that is, um, actually repetitive and relational, we actually, our minds are trained to ignore the sensations that go with being danger, 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 danger. And so all this neurologically, all this stuff gets twisted up. Um, 
and contorted. And so one of the things we do is, okay, you feel what you feel. Let's let that be true. There's also a way in which we can get buried in sensation, like obsessive, like what's mm-hmm. this, what's this, what's it, and, 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 you know, we're on hypervigilance um, on the inside. And so we want to ultimately live in a, in a way that's like harm, harmonious inside where we can track the weather pattern inside and know what's okay, what's not okay. Just like we would track the weather pattern, like it's cold, I need to put a sweater on. I love that. So it's That's really, you can take the right move, the right actions to keep yourself okay. Exactly. But you're still in a storm. Exactly. Or whatever the way, you know, mm-hmm. like um, whatever the weather pattern is. But so it's that ability to really track how do I need to be in this environment, both the outer environment and the inner environment and use the sensations are like guideposts. Um, so, and they also like, they have, you know, they happen really quickly. And so it's information very fast, right? Like when you have a conversation with that person and your gut gets tight every time, like, let's just pay attention to that. What is that? Like, is there something there, you know? And it could be historical. It could be right in this moment. Um, But our bodies are giving us just like uh, meteorologists track the weather and they're looking at a variety of indicators of like to predict a snowstorm. We're looking at, we're learning to track our inner weather patterns, not to predict and control, but just to know. Mm. Um, and a lot of us are kind of either traumatized out of it or acculturated out of it. Um, well, I mean, even we see it in yoga. I mean, a lot of a lot of yoga education is based on like, what does it feel like at your end range of motion when you're super far into something, as opposed to like, if you were at eighty percent, what does that feel like in your body? Right. We focus on like the end point sometimes exactly. of a posture or even a goal of a posture, rather right. than how we're feeling in the transition. Exactly. Yeah. Or even just in the whole experience, really. It's like the whole experience, but we think of it as posture, posture, posture a lot of the time. Right. Totally. So um, can we turn this just for a moment? If you were talking a little bit about how our bodies are responding potentially around our eating. Mm -hmm. And I know we've spoken about this a little bit before, you know, turning this somatic therapy and experience into one that can help us around food and body. I know you have some experience with that. Do you think that there's a similar strategy to use around the body sense? Well, I think sometimes when we're really deep down the pathway of a disordered eating situation, we don't even know when we're hungry or not. So just even establishing basic sensory awareness of hunger and thirst. It, hunger and thirst are interesting because they're sensations, but they're also like bodily needs. Mm-hmm. So, and they can accompany other sensations too, like jittery or headachey or, you know, other grumbling, things like that. But um, so I think just, you know, reestablishing that is probably really key but also the ability to know 
um, I know you, you work a lot with that term satiate and like, what is it that we're really hungry for, right? When we feel some kind of hunger, is that like a physical hunger? Is that a need we're trying to fill? Is it, you know, uh, a spiritual thing? Like what kind of hunger mm. are we actually experiencing? Um, and some of that might be met with food and some of it might not. Um, and might be better served with something else. And I also think there's something to um, like the energetics of food and the way in which we eat, how it was prepared, where it comes from that probably make an impact on us too. Um, like, you know, I grew up with a very, um, my grandmother was Polish, is very old world Jewish grandmother. There is nothing about what she cooked that is gluten-free, dairy-free, like it's not free of anything. (laughs) And so, you know, there, but it was full of love and there is a difference. Like you don't have an, like I didn't have an allergy to her love. Right. So like, what's that like? Like maybe you have five bites of that thing. That's like, so whatever you know, filled with the things you wouldn't normally eat, but it's filled with this other thing, which is tradition and love and, you know, survival and and meaningfulness and all of that, you know? And so I think there's a a way in which we can work, work with the principles from the book in in that way too. Um, Yeah. I mean, just even the, the ability to be like, I want this versus I want that. Some people can't even identify like, I want an apple versus a, I want a piece of toast. Right. And like either one is okay, but if you can't know, how do you know? You have to like, you know, how do you know what you want to eat? Right. Which is actually probably one of the biggest struggles people have is being able to decipher those cues. And anytime I would say, you know, and I talk about this in the book too, but anytime there's like a should, I should be doing this. I should be doing that. There's something happening. There's like some either introject or, some psychological imprint that's at play. Anytime you're shooting on yourself, you're in an, a historical landscape yeah. or cultural or something like that. You're not really in your, in yourself. You're in your mind about it. Right. And we're dealing with ourselves versus whatever things we've been taught, whatever cultural paradigms we've exactly. got. All of it. It's so complicated, but always returning to the sense of self is such a great anchor. Yeah. Always returning to that inner world. So tell us where we can get your book. I know that we, um, we really, really want to be able to support your book launch. And I know there's a lot going on launching a book in a pandemic. I'm sure there's challenges around that. So I would love to hear where people can find you and your work. It's available everywhere. You can, um, you can order it on Amazon, Barnes and Noble. Like you can definitely get it from the big guys. It's there. If you just Google it. Um, you can also get it from any independent bookstore. So if you're um, in Boulder, um, I don't know if the Boulder bookstore has copies right now. They did for a while, but I haven't checked what they've got right now. I mean, it was in the recommended section for a good while. Nice. Um, so thank you, Boulder bookstore for that. Yeah. Um, but you can always special order it from them. If you also, ch- uh, IndieBound is a great platform where you just type in your zip code and they'll tell you which uh, independent you can order it from, but it's everywhere. Like it's, um, it's not a special order situation. It's, it's out there. 
Great. And what is your website URL? Yeah. Um, my website is ecstaticunfoldment.com. Okay. Ecstaticunfoldment.com. And you know what? The book is on there and a link to purchase the book is, is on there too. And the other work I do courses, yoga classes, individual work with me, it's all there. So. Awesome. Well, we'll definitely put that in the show notes so people can find you easily with just a click. Cool. I feel like we could go on and on. I so know maybe, it. We'll, maybe we'll circle back for part two of the Let's podcast, <laughs> but it's a great honor to have you here. And I'm so excited for, you know, this new chapter for you. It's amazing to read your work and you're a beautiful writer and so clear. So I've been really enjoying reading your book and, um, and it's great to have this conversation. So let's reconvene soon and do part two. And um, it's great to see you. Yeah. Yeah, same. Yeah, just keep me posted. We'll do it. Awesome. Thank you so much for listening to this very special episode of Satiate. Until next time, I'm sending you all the heartfelt health and happiness that you so deserve.